is Bloomberg Surveillance. Overall, what we see is a slow-growth world where the fast-growth markets are not growing as fast as they used to. I look at the banks, and sometimes it's hard to differentiate between a great large-cap versus a great small-cap bank on the financial side. I don't want to sit here and say we have a crystal ball and we know where the price of oil is going in the future. We just don't know. I mean, it can't fall forever, but we just don't know where it's going to go. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, I'm Michael McKee. It is 7 a.m. on Wall Street, 8 p.m. in Shanghai, where the world's most important finance ministers and central bankers will gather this weekend to discuss the global economy and the fear that grips investors these days. That fear back in evidence this morning. European shares lower the stock 600 by almost 8 points, 2.3%. The DAX is down 240 points right now, 2.5%. Here in the U.S., S&P futures off 16, 9 tenths, 9 tenths for Dow futures. They're down 144. NASDAQ e-mini futures are off 51.2%, a lot of red on the screen. Fear is back in the bond markets with yield sliding. Ten-year note yield 1.69 percent, 73 basis points. Your two-year, the German two-year negative 54 basis points. And the action really in the currency markets where the dollar index is up four tenths today. Look at this yen price 111.78. The euro 109.65. And Brexit fears driving the pound ever lower. Breaks through 140, 138. 89 at the moment. But if you are hoping, if you are trading on the idea that G20 will act this weekend to save you and the world, you are wrong. That is the message from U.S. Treasury Secretary Jack Lew in this remarkable and exclusive interview with our David Weston. I'm hopeful that this will be a G20 where we take the commitment that we got uh, in, in, in the last meetings uh, to, for countries to refrain from competitive devaluation and push it a little bit and, and have that be something that, uh, that is heard uh, outside of the meeting room, but to reassure the world that that, that is a commitment taken seriously well, by the, the 20 largest economies. What can we hope to see in the communique coming out of these meetings? that goes beyond that? Or is it a matter of taking the last communique and marking it well, up? I think what's different is um, these last uh, months have made clear that the weakness in demand globally is a problem uh, that can't be solved just by everyone looking to the United States. I've been telling uh, my counterparts for a couple of years now, I think we're doing pretty well. They think we're doing pretty well. but. You can't count on the United States providing all the demand for the world. We can't be the consumer first and last resort. There needs to be more. And what does that mean? It means that in, in countries that have big economies, regions that have big economies, they need to use policy tools. So, you know, when China looks at what can it do, it has to look at how does it stimulate consumer demand. When Europe looks at its tools, it looks beyond monetary policy, but it asks what can it do with fiscal policy as well. And in a country like Japan, where you know there's been two decades now of slow or negative growth, um, they're careful not to make the mistake of, of stopping the economy with fiscal policies that put the brakes on, but instead use fiscal policy to drive things forward. Fiscal policy can't solve all the problems. There are structural issues that need to be addressed. Uh, some, in some countries it's regulatory, some countries it's labor markets, in some countries it's financial reform. Those structural issues need to be addressed. But fiscal and monetary policy are important tools. When used together, they're powerful. And that, that's the message we bring. That, combined with sharing information about exchange rates, having a clear understanding 
that it is unacceptable to target exchange rates to gain unfair advantage outside of your country. That's a beggar thy neighbor strategy. That's just is a question of who gets more of the existing pie. It doesn't grow the pie. Um, and I think that as I talk to my counterparts, they understand that, that is, they want to be clear that that's not a direction that we, the world community, can go in. I'm hoping that this G20 reinforces that. You know, there's a lot of speculation in the world that, that, that uh, these, these conversations could lead to uh, different kinds of decisions on that. So underscoring that, um, that that is an important principle, I think, is pretty important. So in your answer, you started actually with global demand. And we hear economists talk about this yeah. and business leaders say yeah. the problem we have to some extent is really a demand problem at this point. What could be done? Do you hope this communique or the agreement coming out of G20 yeah. actually does have specifics about how global demand could be stimulated? So, you know, I, th I think if you look at these agreements, there are general principles that apply in different countries in different ways. And there is always a lot of discussion about the words because no country wants to sign on to general words that it knows it will be uh, it will be uh, behaving inconsistently with. So getting those principles right, getting a little bit more meat on the bones, makes a difference. I can't get ahead of the process. We're still going back and forth before we even meet on some of these issues. I don't think this is a moment in time when you're going to see individual countries make the kinds of specific commitments that have been made in some other contexts that have been marked by real crisis. This is not a moment of crisis. This is a moment where there, you know, you've got real economies doing better than markets think you know, in some cases. You have um, a future that could be influenced very much by the kinds of policies that I'm uh, describing. And uh, the idea is how do you avoid having things go to a place that uh, you don't want them to go. That's a different conversation than what do you do when you're in the middle of a full-blown crisis. The only time you see uh, uh, the kinds of communiques with that kind of detail is once you've gotten beyond the, 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 the point. So I'm hopeful that the kind of conversation that uh, I'm describing actually moves the dial. Let me put it this way. If the conversation were to go the other way, and you were to see some reticence to make the commitment to refrain from competitive devaluation and not take a little bit of a step further, that would be a cause of real concern. Because right now, it's a moment in time where if one country were to move in that direction, there's a triggering effect of knock-on policies, and that would be a very bad thing for the global economy. It wouldn't grow the economy for sure, and I think it could lead to, it could lead to very uh, negative uh, 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 ramifications both economically and, and, and geopolitically. So I think this is actually an important moment, and these kinds of principles uh, really matter. There's no substitute for seeing uh, your counterparts face-to-face -face and talking to them. And the world will be watching to some extent. Yeah. Particularly markets will be watching. Yeah. Economic actors will be watching. Investors will be watching. Are you concerned that expectations may be too high about what the G20 can deliver as a practical matter when it comes to growth? Well, obviously, my response in a bit is sending a clear message. Don't, uh, don't expect a crisis response in a non-crisis environment. Um, you know, it's not the job of finance ministers and central bank governors to accelerate a crisis. It's our job to try and avoid a crisis. If you're in a crisis, you do different things. Obviously, the meetings after the financial crisis during the recession had a different character to them. Um, you know, I have, in my conversations with counterparts, 
uh, gotten a strong sense that there is serious attention being given to how to address the issues that we're discussing. And I think together, by having this kind of conversation, we can lead to better outcomes. Does that mean that coming out of this, you'll have point estimates of what each country is going to do and how? You rarely get that out of uh, a meeting like this. So I think that would not be the kind of expectation to have. But I don't think it's uh, unreasonable to have the expectations that coming out of this will be a more stable uh, understanding of what the future may look like. And that, and that, is, um, that is an important thing. Because uh, you, you look at uh, the world's reaction to the policymaking in China over the last uh, two months, really the last six months, since August, um, it's underscored how communication of policy is critically important uh, in order to have the market and other counterparts around the world know what you intend and what you can be expected to do. I think that it's not just a, a problem, a challenge in China. It's obviously a problem uh, as, as, as each of us uh, undertakes policies, and these meetings are a chance to, to work through some of those issues. U.S. Treasury Secretary Jack Lew, uh, very Tom, forthcoming, forthright, yeah. candid uh, interview in which he basically tells David Weston, if you are in the markets and you think that there's going to be some sort of coordinated effort to save you, not going to happen. Yeah, I, I thought it was very pre-G20. It was way above average in terms of always the Lou candor that was there. But but it, I thought it was assertive. And when you link that into the challenges that Chair Yellen has, looking at a better-than-good U.S. economy, look at Lowe's earnings this morning like Home Depot's uh, yesterday. I, I, I really think it's something anybody on Global Wall Street has to pay attention to, even with markets responding uh, this morning with their collective deterioration. Indeed. And um, at this point, uh, you wonder how markets are going to go yeah. from where they're going to go from here, knowing there's no safety net underneath. Them. Right. Well, that's what we have. Let me do a data check here. First, though, folks, this morning, Bloomberg Surveillance brought to you by Invesco. Invesco believes it's time to bench the benchmarks to consider active management and factor-based strategies. Find out more. At Invesco.com slash high conviction. Futures out to weakness this morning, the negative 16. Dow futures at negative 145. Uh, too much to talk about across assets. Oil down a dollar nine cents, thirty dollars seventy-five cents. I'm going to call that indeterminate in the middle on oil. We had a record 10-year low in Germany, 0.131 earlier this morning. Right now, 0.135, positive 0.135 on the German 10-year. As Michael McKee mentioned, the yen stronger, 111.79 right now in the U.K., uh, the pound sterling, rather. 138.90 means Charles Dumas can't travel here anytime uh, soon. So we'll uh, give you more data checks through our morning. This hour of surveillance brought to you by Volvo Cars White Plains. Visit VolvoCarsWhitePlains.com. Here is John Tucker with the latest news headlines. Uh, Michael and Tom, well, Donald Trump's dominating victory in the Nevada caucuses pushes him further out ahead of his nearest competitors for the Republican presidential nomination, giving his unorthodox candidacy a major boost heading into Super Tuesday contest next week. Hillary Clinton doesn't just want to beat Bernie Sanders in South Carolina. She wants to beat expectations. She's running more than 20 points ahead of Sanders in most Polls hold heading into Saturday's Democratic presidential primary, buoyed by overwhelming support from the state's black voters. And Uber Technologies starting its very first motorcycle taxi service in Bangkok. 
where perennial congestion leads to rush hour traffic speeds in the Thailand capital of just about 6.8 miles an hour. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists in more than 150 news bureaus around the world. I'm John Tucker, Mike and Tom. Uh, John Tucker, thanks so much. Uh, on this day of tumult, Diana Choileva with us with Lombard Street Research, and we will speak to her next on Markets on the Move. Bloomberg Surveillance. Bloomberg Surveillance is brought to you by your Tri-State BMW centers. Visit them online at tristatebmw.com. At BMW, they make only one thing, the ultimate driving machine. Global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by Eisner Amfer. When entrepreneurs face challenges like choosing a business structure or access to capital, they call the accountants and advisors at Eisner Amfer. Connect with them, EisnerAmfer.com slash tech. And global equities are extending declines as a sliding oil price weight on industry groups from banks to commodity producers and drag down emerging markets. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P E-mini futures down 19 points. Dow E-mini futures down 169. NASDAQ E-mini futures down 57. The DAX in Germany is down 2.6%. Ten-year Treasury up 11.30 seconds. The yield 1.68%. Yield on the two-year 0.72%. NYMEX crude oil down 3.7% or a dollar. 17 to $30.70 a barrel. Comex Gold up 1.1% or $13.60 to $12.36.20 an ounce. The Euro, $1.0970. The Yen, $111.76. The British Pound, $1.3893. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, thank you very much. Well, you just heard a remarkable interview uh, with Treasury Secretary Jack Lew by our David Weston, in which uh, the Treasury Secretary said financial markets expecting the G20 finance ministers and central bankers to step in and put a floor underneath them are going to be disappointed by this weekend's meeting because the world is not in a crisis, despite what a lot of people might think. Diana Charleva is Chief Economist, Head of Research at Lombard Street. Uh, nice enough to sit through the interview with us. Uh, and you were nodding your head a lot as Jack Lew was speaking. I was nodding because he made two points I absolutely agree with. Uh, the first one, which you mentioned, the real economy, in particular in um, the U.S., is not in crisis. Another crucial point was that competitive devaluation, if All the major economies go for it is not going to solve the problems of the world of today. In fact, it's a lose-lose game. But I disagreed with some of the assessment uh, that he made as to how the world can rebalance and move forward and how we can generate genuine consumer demand. Well, if, uh, if you disagree with that, how can we rebalance and genu- generate consumer demand? The world has a golden opportunity at the moment to achieve what I call a deflationary rebalancing. Chinese growth of just 3% on our estimates currently is exactly what this world needs because it means lower commodity prices, distributing real income in the hands of the consumer in the West. Uh, At the same time, China is not 
over-investing and just throwing money at excess capacity anymore, which then allows potentially for uh, other profitable investment opportunities right. in the rest of the world. I mean, I, but I look at the market screen. I'm looking at the Bloomberg screen, and I understand what Secretary Lou's coming from. And as a public voice, he's got to say that. And Governor Carney has to talk within the milieu of austerity in the United Kingdom. I'm looking at a coordinated response on the screen that doesn't look for a coordinated effort to save the day at the G20 meetings. But do you agree that the screen is saying things are deteriorating? I have a German tenure at a 0.134. You have um, a headline just crossing that Brazil's debt ratings have been cut by Moody's. Okay, well, it's like central casting. Come on, I mean, these are events with the posturing that that every single world leader and policymaker has to look at. The danger of what's going on in markets at the moment is that it does feed back to the real economy and yes. the mechanism that would happen would be if this continues and abated for another two, three months, if it then hurts consumer confidence in the U.S., in the euro area, and consumers decide to save the real income gains rather than spend them. So, yes, there is a feedback loop. But if we look at what has happened since the financial crisis, what we see is that quantitative easing worked in terms of underpinning real asset prices, largely by decreasing the demand for holding money, or in other words, increasing risk-loving, not by injecting actual money in the economy supporting asset prices. And I think at this point in time, the market is coming to terms with the fact that actually a lot of that was based on optimism rather than an injection injection of excess money. And my assessment is that investors have actually failed to understand to this day what caused the crisis and what has happened okay, since. Okay, I'll go with so that. So they I, are confused. I, I will go. They're confused. I'll go with it. You sound like you're at Davos. I'm looking at a screen. The curve flattening this morning is extraordinary on the vanilla two years, ten years spread. To our audience, Describe when policymakers must step in to begin to staunch this. Do you, is there a fiscal solution in your London? Just as one example? No is the answer, right? There's no, no fiscal, there's no apparent fiscal solution to austerity in London. The problem is that if you get into a mess, you can't get out of it without pain. We just have to accept that. And we had the pain of the financial crisis, and some countries adjusted after that and did the right thing, notably America. But China, Japan, and until three years ago, China did not. So now the global economy has to pay the price of that mess. And unfortunately, financial markets cannot be on a continual um, um, rise when the, the, the global economy has not rebalanced. The problem is that the actions that central bankers have to take in order to facilitate a successful rebalancing involve um, 
a tot uh, involve thinking about monetary policy in a totally different framework, which they don't at the moment. So the danger right. is that this, this does turn into a crisis. Diana, thank you so much. Diana Chileva uh, with Lombard Street Research. She's going to continue with us, and we'll do that uh, looking at uh, the markets. Let me start with oil, $30.73, range-bound, in between support and resistance, but down a dollar fourteen this morning. Brent, thirty-two forty-four as well. Looking at sterling, it's, a, it's stunned Francine Lacroix. 138.80 on cable. Stay with us. Bloomberg Surveillance. Bloomberg Surveillance is brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch, committed to bringing higher finance to lower carbon, named the most innovative investment bank for climate change and sustainability by the banker. That's the power of Global Connections, Bank of America, N.A., FDIC. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning, 730 on Wall Street. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. I'm Michael McKee, along with... Tom Keen, a couple of things making news out there. Moody's has cut Brazil's finance rating to junk this morning and downgraded Brazil's outlook to negative. Home improvement retailer Lowe's makes 59 cents a share, matching estimates on better than a uh, forecast revenue of $13.2 billion. That's on better than forecast comp store sales. They were up 5.2%. They're boosting their forecast for the year, as well as Tom notes. That is uh, sort of in contradiction to the gloomy view of the U.S. economy. Rock bottom interest rates are sticking around for American states and cities. New York City sold yesterday general obligation debt for the first time since July, set to be followed this week by deals from Los Angeles and North Carolina. And Carlyle Group buying a majority stake in the Spanish outsourcing company Digitex. That deal expected to close in the second quarter. Now let's check in with John Tucker and get the latest headlines from around the world. John. And Michael, with a big win in the Nevada caucuses, Donald Trump has claimed a third straight commanding victory in the race for the Republican presidential nomination. Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz in a tight race for a second. Trump promised his supporters an amazing two months ahead in his bid for the White House. A deadly storm system that spawned tornadoes in the Gulf Coast states last night, expected to bring severe weather to the Carolinas by this afternoon. The man accused of randomly killing six people in Michigan had a personal store of weapons that included handguns and long guns, but there was nothing in his past that prevented him from owning as many guns as he could afford. Antonin Scalia's doctor says the justice suffered from coronary artery disease, diabetes, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, sleep apnea, high blood pressure, and several other ailments that probably contributed to his death February 13th. The public and reporters who covered the Supreme Court were unaware that Scalia had any serious health problems. At Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by 2,400 journalists in more than 150 news bureaus around the world. I'm John Tucker. Michael. Thank you, John. Time now for the Ray Katina Auto Group Bloomberg NBC Sports Update. Here's John Stashow, John. All right, Mike, much-needed win for the Devils, who had lost three in a row right now on the outside looking in for making the playoffs. But they've had success with the Rangers this season, taking three of four. They scored twice in the second period, two more late in the third. In Newark, Devils beat the Rangers 5-2, to two, outshot them 36-19. to 19. They're now one point behind Pittsburgh for the last playoff spot. In Minnesota, friends, Nielsen scored twice. John Tavares is 23rd of the year. The Islanders 
won four to one. In Portland, start of a franchise record nine game road trip for the Nets. They battled the Red Hot Trailblazers, but fell short 112 104. The Portland backcourt of Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum both scored 34 points. Lillard's had five straight games of more than 30. Brooke Lopez had 36 in the loss. Blazers have now won six straight, 11 of 12. Next stop for Brooklyn is tomorrow in Phoenix. Knicks visit Indiana tonight. College basketball, the big game nationally was Kansas rallying to win at Baylor. Battle of top 20 teams, 66-60 locally. St. Peter's overwhelmed Manhattan, 61-40. Rutgers fell to 0-15 in the Big Ten, outscored 51-30 in the second half by a Minnesota team that was 1-13 in league play. The final was 83-61. With the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update, I'm John Stashauer. Thank you, John. We are keeping an eye on financial markets. Fear back in the saddle today and uh, riding the uh, financial markets. We're watching U.S. futures deteriorate. S&P futures down by nine-tenths right now. In Europe, it's a 2.1% drop for the stock's 600. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio Worldwide. Welcome back to Bloomberg Surveillance. I'm Michael McKee, along with Tom Keene. It's a risk-off day, most definitely. Oil is lower this morning. West Texas 3083, down 3.2%. Brent down 2.1%, $32.56. The real action today in the currency markets, the yen, 111.82, the euro, 109.63, the pound, 138.86. We've got some haven trades, and we've certainly got some Brexit trades out there. A lot of people wondering whether the uh, G7 finance ministers and even more so the central bankers are going to actually do anything this weekend when they meet in Shanghai to prop up global markets and reintroduce some additional confidence out there. Diana Charleva is a chief economist, head of research for Lombard Street, and she's, uh, never mind the pound, she's made her way over here. I don't want to see your expense report when you go back, given, uh, given uh, it's costing you so much more to come over here now, but thank you for coming. Uh, you and I were talking off the air that a lot of uh, what is going on are concerns about what is happening in Asia, particularly with Japan. There is talk that with the yen falling as it has, strengthening as it has, uh, we're going to see more from the Bank of Japan next week. We're going to see additional, uh, they're going to go farther into negative rates. If this happens, the world economy and financial markets are on the route to a real crisis. Uh, Abenomics has largely amounted to competitive devaluation, which, given Japan's primary structural problem of too much income in the business sector and too little in the household sector, has actually made the real economy situation worse there. But the real damage has been done to the rest of the world because... We are operating in a global economy which is deficient, lacking consumer demand. And competitive devaluation, if everyone goes for it from the major economy, is not going to benefit anyone. Japan is playing very dangerously also with the likelihood of this ending up in a public debt default and also an inflationary explosion, probably not through the course of this year, but when we look to 2017. It's been the Kyle Bass argument for quite some time. How do they get to an inflationary explosion? Well, look, 
they didn't have a private sector excessive debt and a huge need for deleveraging, which quantitative easing would offset. What they have done is QE on the front foot, and the only reason this injection of money has not spilled into the real economy is that the majority of the bonds they're buying are from banks, which are not correspondingly lending. Now, banks are running out of JGBs by the end of the year. If they step up quantitative easing as well as um, uh, lower negative rates, then the likelihood is that this will go in the real economy, but because they're not changing or improving the real trend growth rate, it's going to spill over in prices. Quickly, before we let you go, I have to ask about uh, China. Uh, The markets seem to want the Chinese to devalue. Yes. If the Chinese were to open up the capital account fully, the yuan will depreciate. And I keep stressing depreciate versus devalue because the bank of uh, the, the People's Bank of China is not intervening to devalue the yuan. In fact, they're intervening to stop it from depreciating further, given the market forces. But where internationally policymakers and central bank make a mistake is to bundle China with Japan and the euro area. And that's wrong because the yuan is overvalued. China has massive, excessive capital that he has to unwind. If it tries to do that with an overvalued currency, sapping export income as well, Beijing has to be some sort of magician at reform in order to produce a rebalancing towards consumer spending. In other words, China needs a weaker currency to help its rebalancing towards consumer spending. And when Secretary Liu was talking about competitive devaluation, he put China in the same pot as Japan and the euro area. And that's a serious mistake because China actually from the major economies is the only one which in terms of its structural policies, is on the right route. Diana Chaleva, thank you very much. Never enough time. Thank you for coming in. And hopefully you'll be able to afford to come back uh, soon. The pound uh, at the moment, 138.90, down almost a uh, full unit on the day. The uh, offshore UN is down by a tenth of a percent at 654.08. The official fixing, 653.80, almost down two-tenths of a percent. Time now for the Bloomberg NJIT STEM report, brought to you by New Jersey Institute of Technology, partnering with government and industry to apply the university's world-class research assets to innovate and spur economic growth. Learn more at njit.edu. Here's Bob Moon. Mike, thank you. And here's what's making news in science, technology, engineering, and math. Uber Technologies is starting its very first motorcycle taxi service in Bangkok, where perennial congestion leads to rush hour traffic speeds in the Thailand capital around seven miles an hour. The startup that began life as a limousine service in the affluent San Francisco Bay Area now wants to tackle the workmanlike vehicles that hordes of Bangkok residents rely on to navigate jam-packed streets. It says it can help untangle the traffic snarls that result in two-hour daily commutes. And Western Digital's plan to sell a 15% stake to a Chinese investor fell apart after the deal came under a U.S. national security review, highlighting the government's ability to chill agreements that could give Chinese companies access to U.S. technology. And that's this morning's Bloomberg NJIT STEM report. Thank you very much, Bob Moon. The other story we are following in the currency markets and markets overall 
is Brazil downgraded, and the Brazilian real falls below 4 to 3.9915. Bloomberg Surveillance brought to you by T2 Computing, a new kind of IT solutions company for workflow, mobility, and infrastructure. Let them explain how their expertise can help you gain greater business value. Visit T2Computing.com for more information. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app. And on your radio, this is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by CBOE VIX Options and Futures. Volatility can be harnessed with CBOE VIX Options and Futures. See disclosures or learn more at CBOE.com slash Powerful Outcomes VIX. Global equity is extending declines as a sliding oil price weighs on industry groups from banks to commodity producers and drags down emerging markets. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P E-mini futures down 18 points. Dow E-mini futures down 159. NASDAQ E-mini futures down 55. The DAX in Germany is down 2.5%. Ten-year Treasury up 8.30 seconds. The yield 1.69%. Yield on the two-year 0.72%. NYMEX crude oil down 3.5% or $1.12 to $30.75 a barrel. COMEX gold up 1.2% or $14.10 to $12.36.70 an ounce. The euro, $1.0966, the yen, 111.80. Lowe's posting fourth-quarter sales that beat analyst estimates following larger rival Home Depot and taking advantage of a years-long real estate rally that's spurring consumers to spend on their homes. Chesapeake Energy saying it intends to pay a half-billion-dollar debt that's coming due in three weeks after exceeding its first-quarter target for asset sales. Its shares are down 4% this morning. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen Moscow. Well, the news of the morning, Jack Lew, the Treasury Secretary, telling our David Weston there is not a crisis out there that the G20 needs to respond to. We were talking with Diana Choleva just a moment ago from Lombard Street. Uh, she agrees there's not an economic crisis. U.S. doing better than most people think. Europe doing better than most people think. Is there a political crisis, a geopolitical crisis out there? Anders Kaur is the founder of Core Analytics, and he joins us now to follow up again on the uh, Secretary's remarks. Anders, a lot going on. We've got uh, face-off between uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, the U.S., Europe, Russia, in Syria, uh, and you've got issues in Ukraine popping up again. Uh, a lot of questions about whether or not there is a geopolitical threat to the global economy. Uh, what do you think? Well, there's certainly um, some concern there. Uh, the extent to which it hits the economy is another is another issue. But the, um, I mean, right now the U.S. and Russia are under negotiations about uh, Syria and um, exactly what the ground reality is going to be there. Remarkably, the negotiations are getting down to the point of how much territory is Nusra going to. Uh, hold how much territory is ISIS going to hold, and the question really is, um, what you know, will these entities, these uh, terrorist entities, actually listen to whatever the U.S. and Russia say? My, I would say doubtful. Anders, I am really enlightened to know how you link oil dynamics and the global oil OPEC non-OPEC U.S. industry into your international relations. How's it fit in right now? Uh, well, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are very close uh, allies on this, and um, some of the speculation that I've heard is that 
somehow Saudi Arabia's decision to uh, keep pumping oil and, and even increase uh, pumping oil over the last year or so is in part to punish Russia. Now, uh, total speculation, I haven't really seen evidence on that, but I think it's an interesting, uh, an interesting theory. Well, where, do, where does that end up? Um, at, at this point, we've got more oil. I understand they're starting to turn away oil at Cushing, uh, some grades of oil. They just don't have any storage left. So how does this play out? Saudi Arabia has said that they're willing to go down to $20 a barrel uh, in order to let the market work. Um, their point is that uh, – you know they can produce at very very low levels. The U.S. shale producers mm-hmm. cannot produce cannot produce at those low levels, and so they rightfully have market share uh, at their old at their old market share levels. Um, so they're, they're looking to squeeze out um, the U.S. shale producers. Iran wants to gain market share. So there's a market share battle going on right now, and that's why we see oil right. keep dropping. Uh, Anders, within international relations, the migrant issue and the refugee issue is front and center across all of Europe. Can you fold that into the present market dynamics? I mean, I, I don't buy the idea it's all Brexit, all Brexit, that's just, or all Super Tuesday for that matter. But how does the, the, the crushing scale of the migrant refugee debate fold into, if it does, Euro economics? Well, the, I mean, the refugees, um, some people argue that the refugees uh, can produce, can yield more labor um, in Europe. Um, but Europe is already awash in, in labor. I mean, there's a lot, there's, you know, there's a lot of the southern uh, European countries that have very high unemployment rates. And so when you have all these refugees flooding in uh, from war-torn countries, um, it's really a destabilizing Factor. It's leading to a lot of uh, disagreement among the EU countries. Um, people are questioning Schengen, which is the uh, freedom of movement between, uh, you know, of, of people between the, uh, the countries of the EU. Uh, it's playing into the, the Brexit or British exit uh, movement in Britain. Uh, it's very, it's very disaggregating, very destabilizing, and I think Putin, who you know, is in part responsible for the refugee exodus out of Syria because he supports, I mean, his own planes are bombing uh, villages there, and he's supporting Assad's planes bombing yeah. villages, and that's what's creating this exodus. So in part, you know, this he it's playing into his desire to destabilize Europe and maybe punish Europe for what it's doing. Mike, but, well, I, I don't mean, Mike, we've got a little bit of strength in the tape. It's been a really ugly two hours. And, and there's a little bit of a bid to the tape. But you do, th- you, you wonder, Mike, how the international relations overlay goes on a Europe trying to find marginal growth. I would think migrants and refugees could almost be growth stimulating. Mm, well, but we're not there yet. As Anders says, there's some, there's a, fa- a little bit of a fallacy in that. Actually, the, the concern some people have, Anders, is that by the summertime, when the migrant crisis crush is expected to be in full swing because the, the weather's good enough for them to really try to get across the Mediterranean, that we're going to see you know, maybe even Greece back in a Grexit mode. I think it's possible. I mean, Greece has 
uh, Greece has threatened to uh, scupper the deal, uh, any kind of British deal, um, in terms of keeping uh, Brit- Britain happy in the in the EU. Um, and you know, the, the Syriza, which is the British, the very left wing British um, party that's now in power, has been friendly with Putin in the past. We remember. Uh, you know, a while ago when the, the, the Prime Minister of Tsipras was visiting Putin and threatening to take money from Putin instead of uh, deal with the, the Troika, the IMF and the, the others. So it's, it's you know, Syriza is not a friendly uh, party for the EU. What about the U.S. presidential election? We have... I don't even want to characterize. Does Anders, Anders has like five degrees from fancy schools, and we're going to sink into the morass of the U.S. No, we're not going to sink into We're going to try to stay away from the morass. But uh, you have uh, candidates running around talking about how terrible things are in this country with no plan to do anything about it except to make people angry. How much of a threat is that to global order? Well, I mean, I think that internationally, uh, people really despise Trump. And so he's, uh, on the uh, front and center, on the TV all the time. And, uh, it's, we're really not showing our best side, uh, to, to world public opinion when we, sh- when, when he says things that are anti-immigrant or, um, you know, close to racist. So it's, uh, it's, um, you know, it's not, it's not our best side, but it is a democracy. And that's, that's uh, that's a plus at least. But does it does it have knock-on effects to policy to the, the world order that uh, we're going to have to deal with? What 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 sort of knock-on effects are you thinking about? Well, I'm ju- I'm just wondering if uh, you know if it limits our ability to gain international cooperation on some of these key issues we're talking about. I think so. I mean, it's definitely a, it's a, it's it kind of. Um, you know, people look at us and wonder. I think mean, I think there's a big question. You know, how how will the next president respond to Russia? How will the next president respond to China? Um, everyone's looking at how these presidents are. They tough on Russia? Likely to be tough on Russia or not? Bernie Sanders is very very soft on Russia and China. Um, you know, I think uh, Hillary Clinton will be similar on Russia and China to what Obama did. Maybe she'll have a bit of more of a chip on her shoulder and she'll have to prove herself mm. a bit more. Uh, so she might be marginally tougher. Mm. Um, you know, Trump will be tough on China and soft on Russia. No. He said he, he loves, he likes Putin. Honest Core, thank you so much. Honest Core with Core Analytics. Mike, that was interesting. I mean, an international relations take on our domestic politics and particularly what we're seeing in the markets um, this morning. Let me go granular with you right now. And a surveillance correction. Thank you, Bob Sinch. Um, the intraday low, not a record low. The record low was like a year ago or low. Where we almost went down to zero on the German 10-year. But we hit a recent low on the German 10-year early this morning just for half a cup of coffee. Right now, a little bit of a rebound, 0.147% on the German 10-year. You can take that across really everything out there a little bit. You have a sigh of relief. Futures negative 18 up to negative 16. Another hour of Bloomberg surveillance.